Before we get started with the show, we'd like to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on the platform Patreon. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider supporting us there. You can get a range of successful magazine pitches from myself, Simon, and other previous co-hosts and friends of the show. Uh, Simon's going to tell us a little bit about our latest donor. Our latest Patreon is Jack Summers. Jack is a former reporter and news editor, now a freelance writer and editor. He's trying to write more often for magazines and papers, so he's enjoyed the package of pitches. And he's also researching a book about the history of anti-vaxxers. He says the most useful thing about the podcast is the detail it gives on practical elements such as money and the interviewer's career paths. For listeners like me, that's invaluable, actionable information. Thank you very much indeed, Jack. Glad you've been enjoying the show and good luck with your book. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to the writer Rebecca Giggs. We spoke to Rebecca about Fathoms, her book all about whales, about her exhaustive research process, including dealing with scientists and scientific research, and about moving from Australia to a wider literary canvas. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Rebecca, to Always Take Notes. Um, Could we start by talking about your creative background as a writer? Um, what made you want to get into into nature writing in particular, but writing in general? So I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. Um, that's in terms of its Aboriginal sovereign custodianship. It's Noongar Wajak country. Um, and I, as a kid, I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any journalists or even really anybody in the arts. Um, both my parents are in trades. My mum works in medical technology and my dad is um, started out as a, an electrician. Um, although I have to say, I rang my dad recently to say I'd be doing some British media around the release of the book. And he said to me that I needed to make a point of mentioning that when he was an apprentice electrician, he helped install the mechanical stacks that are in the, the uh, British library. Um, so the archive and retrieval process there. And he likes to think that we contribute to the public sphere of literature as a family through his hands-on skill and, and my creative efforts as well. Um, but I, I went through university um, as a very competent, but you know, by no means exemplary law student. Um, I finished in the middle of the global financial crisis, um, but in my early twenties, I'd managed to find a group of peers, a group of writers who were um, collaborators, I suppose, on various little magazines and blogs and other such initiatives. Um, and one of them said to me that if you submitted a short fiction portfolio to the university's English department, you could get a bit of funding to do postgraduate study in the creative arts. Um, so there wasn't an undergraduate program, a workshop program, but there was the possibility of um, getting funding for, for postgraduate study. Um, and in Australia, that means doing 50% fiction and 50% exegetical work, um, picking up some kind of theoretical aspect of your creative practice and, and pushing it into either a philosophical or a, a theory-based piece of writing. Um, and I'd written short fiction for a very long time. Um, so, yeah, I successfully applied for that program. Um, and worked, you know, pretty much solo for about four years on, on trying to produce some short fiction. Um, and when I graduated, I had a few short stories published in literary journals in Australia. And that really 
um, got some attention from mid-tier presses both in the UK and in Oz, um, which I sort of batted away at that point because I think the impression of most of the commissioning editors there would be that I should write a novel um, and that was not front of mind for me. Um, I'd had this um, encounter that's described in the preface of my book, Fathoms, with a whale that had beached not far from my family home in Perth. And I wanted to write a narrative nonfiction um, short book that leapt from that experience. So um, yeah, I was taken on by a sort of mid-tier publisher in Australia and uh, set about pursuing that project. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the kind of origin, the origin myth. <laughs> Before we turn to Fathoms in, in more detail, could we talk a bit about nature writing as a as a genre of writing, um, and particularly this this difference in the in the British or Australian and an American approach with this, and where it fits with regards to maybe travel writing, science writing, like how tell us a bit about it as a as a form of writing and and where it fits in in the wider literary landscape. It's obviously something that there's a lot of activity in this area at, at present. Yeah, you know, I think particularly at, given the year that we've had, it's uh, people are really reaching for experiences of nature at this point. So, you know, natural history is really having a bit of a moment. Um, but the genre of nature writing is a very Eurocentric um, genre. It, it comes out of um, philosophical, philosophical traditions in transcendentalism and essentially, um, you know, it, it's a medley of alpine invites sublime alpine environments and on the other hand like american national parks and the idea that nature is in some senses a uh, democratic um, so there are distinct traditions that come out of the states and from um, europe um, the european tradition is much more wedded to ideas of i suppose spirit finding a kind of um quasi-religious encounter with nature, whereas um, the Americans, as I say, have slightly more political um, temperament in their, in their nature writing. But Australia is in this sort of interesting position where, um, you know, we're a colonised nation. We, we, um, we have British heritage, but that heritage is a settler heritage and it's uncomfortable in many regards. So, um, you know, it's a, a slightly more culturally relative um, uh, tradition in Australia. Um, but it brings in aspects of science writing. It's generally focused on a first-person narrator who um, leads you through, you know, toggling between scenes and exposition. So that first-person narrator can be very present and it can almost be memoir, or they can be much more offstage, in which case it, it takes on more of a science writing tone. Something I noticed about your writing in particular is that it weaves in lots of sort of artistic references. So kind of Greek mythology, art, poetry, literature. When you're writing those pieces, do those come naturally or do you think actually here this would be a good, in a good time to insert a sort of a literary or an artistic reference and you go out looking for them or is it that you sort of accrued them over the years and then they sort of insert themselves into their pieces, into your pieces more organically than that? You know, I think this project started out uh, with the intention of being 
quite a straight science communication book. So, um, you know, I set out to write a book that was really about the ways in which the lives of whales reflect the changing conditions of the ocean, be that sonic change, ecological change, chemical change. Um, and I really struggled with it for about a year and a half, um, <laughs> trying to write something that really just put, you know, a pane of glass over what were quite complex scientific findings um, and articulate them in a kind of cogent and lucid way to a mainstream audience. And then I had one day where it was a blindingly hot heat wave. I was living in Sydney and um, I went to the public library and I just happened to run into a friend there who's quite a well-known Sydney poet, whose name is Aidan Rolfe. And he sat opposite me on the table and I just had this idea that maybe for just for today I would try to write the difficult part of the preface in the way that Aidan might write it, in a kind of poetic way. And I think once I had that, I really, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was away with it. it. It suddenly made sense to me. It felt like an authentic voice. And I realised that while I, you know, was attempting to write something that was science curious and science literate, it was never going to be, um, you know, a straight book of reportage. It was going to be invested in the ways that we represent the natural world because, you know, it, it's important to think about the qualities of that um, you know, artistic expression um, and how it affects the kinds of nature that we pay attention to um, and the sorts of conservation and preservation actions that we can, that are scoped, you know, like what is the political field of action. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a strange book in that regard, I think, because it's stylistically invested in the lyric um, as, a, as a tradition, but it's by no means exceptional in that regard. You know, you can see threads of that in the writing of Robert McFarlane, Helen MacDonald, Casper um, Henderson, to name just a few of the British writers in that space. Could we talk about the kind of success narrative of whale conservation? So this idea that things were really bad and now they're much better, and then where, where you were kind of coming with regard to that and kind of interrogating that, that tradition? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm a child of the 80s, so I, I remember the sort of faded bumper stickers that you used to see that said, save the whales, and to all intents and purposes, my impression was that that had been done, you know, sperm whales and humpback whale populations were on the increase, particularly off the east coast of Australia. Um, and really, it wasn't until I read this story in the news about a Spanish whale beaching and this was of a, a sperm whale, one of the really big whales that had that, that kind of blocky head that you see on the cover of every edition of Moby Dick. Um, and this whale had beached just south of Granada near the um, Almeria greenhouse district where a lot of um, Europe's salad vegetables are grown. And it was dead when it beached, but it was cut open by a biologist to determine what had killed it. And inside the whale, they just found this stupendous medley of weird objects. They found coat hangers, bits of mattress, um, an old ice cream tub, and, and most alarmingly, they found this greenhouse. So literally the entire greenhouse to Paulins bundled up with ropes and flower pots and a herbicide canister, a whole lot of stuff inside the whale as one big bundle. And my ears really pricked up then because you, you sort of had this icon of the 1980s environmental movement, this real kind of paragon of green devotion. And here it was 
consuming the metaphor that we use to describe climate crisis, the greenhouse, which is literally like the greenhouse effect is the way that we've articulated, you know, global warming. And I think I, I thought at that point that if I'd put that in a novel or a story, I would have been laughed at. It just seemed like a really heavy handed metaphor. But here it was in real life. Um, and I guess it gave me cause to revisit the question of, you know, not just how, you know, is the whale saved, but also how do we measure that? You know, it doesn't matter that there are more whales in the sea when those whales live lives that are much more impeded by plastic waste or by, um, you know, ecological change in the sea. Um, so, yeah, I really wanted to write something about the lives that we ensure for wildlife now, as opposed to the sort of prospect of extinction or those other kinds of environmental threats that characterise a lot of writing in this space now. As you mentioned, um, a beached whale in, in Perth was the sort of starting point for Fathoms. In general, how do you find ideas? Do you think it's, is it mostly drawn from experience? I particularly enjoyed your piece about uh, keeping pet snails recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, that came from lived experience. Um, that was a short piece about uh, some snails that I acquired over the course of the first um, lockdown in 2020. Um, so how do I how do I get story ideas? Um, a couple of different ways. Um, one thing that I've done just recently, in which I do kind of every maybe maybe twice a year or three times a year, is um, have a week where I sit down and really think about the um, trends that are sort of current in my area, my field, um, and the prospect of um, you know cataclysmic events that might relate to environmental um, the environmental beat that I'm sort of particularly trained upon. So. Um, for example, you know, something like Deepwater Horizon, big oil spills, um, as much as efforts have been taken to prevent those things happening again, it seems almost inevitable that one will at some point. Um, and so I keep a series of folders where I sort of, you know, gather together what would I need to know to report those kinds of stories, what are the sources that I would need to rely on, um, you know, what kinds of angles could I, you know, if there was a major oil spill, where would I where would I be reporting from um, and really create these almost preemptive pitches um, that sit there um, so that if, you know, something like the Australian bushfires happens again, I'm, I'm kind of in the pocket to, to undertake that. Um, so unfortunately, I do a bit of disaster forecasting is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I um, have curated a very detailed Twitter feed to try and keep my eyes on different conservation groups. And um, I have a few places that I have a strong connection to. So not only Perth, but some parts of Sydney, some parts of Melbourne, um, where I know that I could go and quite easily report. So I'm, I'm conscious of if things happen there, I can get set up there quite quickly. Um, I'm very mobile at the moment, so that, that helps <laughs> if the travel was more possible. Um, yeah, so a lot of it is online and then some of it comes directly from sources. So relationships with scientists, um, so getting a bit of a advance warning if there's about to be an interesting paper in biology and zoology particularly. Um, yeah. Could you tell us about the, the whale cure 
this thing in the 19th century about getting inside inside a whale. I, I saw this and was sort of fascinated and appalled by it in slightly equal measures. Could you, could you, could you tell the listeners about it? what does it cure at the start of it? <laughs> um, so, you know, in the 19th century, whaling, um, you know, was the first global extractive industry. Whaling was done from America, it was done from Europe, um, and it was also done... Um, from shorelines in, in Australia. And one of the major whaling towns in Australia is called Eden. It's on the southwest coast. And interestingly, there they were hunting, you know, the very large whales that were very fatty so that they could render the blubber down to make a kind of oil um, that was useful in, to various different industrial processes in factories. They were taking the baleens from the whales, which are also these um, kind of a fibrous substance that some whales have in their mouths, uh, it's almost like having a mustache inside your upper lip. Um, and those, that substance was really like the thermoplastic of the time. It could be molded. It's for, cor- for corsets, wasn't Sometimes it? Sometimes for corsets, yeah. But everything from, um, you know, police battens were made by hardening um, the, the, the substance into a batten shape, hula hoops, surgical stitching, um, the stuffing in furniture, the springs in watches. It was... You know, our forebears lived in almost constant contact with products that were made from the stuff of whales. Um, at any length, in Eden, not only did they use the whale for those purposes, but um, they also, you know, this idea sprung up in the surrounding region that there were therapeutic uses to the whale's body and that if you had rheumatism or if you had, even if you had low mood, if you had depression or melancholy, you could go to the whaling station and before the whalers set about dismantling the body, they would carve out these conical pits in the side of it, each of them roughly the size of a barrel. And a person who was unwell would actually sit inside the body of the whale. It would have been extremely hot. It would have been putrid in smell. The idea was that it would cure you of your condition. How long do you have to you stay? You certainly put things Sorry. in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Simon. I was going to say, how long do you have to stay in there? <laughs> uh, well, look, it's in an area where the reporting is very, um, I mean, the, the, the sort of local newspaper reports on this, you have to forgive a little bit of hyperbole because there's all these tall stories of people who, you know, had suffered polio and were walking on sticks and then and then got inside the whale and were suddenly able to walk again and... But of course, this is like a metaphorical narrative that has currency in other areas as well. You know, we we have these stories of the whale in our culture where, whether it's the Jonah myth or the tall tales of fishermen, the whale kind of acts as this deus ex machina, comes in and it forces a a moral pivot in a narrative. Um, And so, you know, the, the treatment, the medical treatment was very much pulling on that idea of like, a whale was a, a moral good and it um, could, I suppose, change your, your inner, inner weather <laughs> um, by sitting inside of it. But uh, I, can't imagine it was, I can't imagine it was pleasant by any, <laughs> by any regard. And maybe you only thought that you'd been cured because you'd been through such a hardship and it felt bad to backtrack from that experience. <laughs> Yeah, get yourself out of there as fast as possible. Um, I think Simon will probably ask about more factoids because he sent over an enormous list of ones he wants to know more about. But I wondered whether we could talk in general more about your uh, research process because obviously 
you know, not only the current state of whale conservation and and pollution and everything else that's affecting affecting their lives, but full of historical tidbits such as that. How long did it take to accrue all of that information and how did you go about structuring it? So it was a six-year write um, and I also took two six-month breaks um, over the course of doing this project. From 2014 to 2019, I had a full-time job, so I was really writing it, you know, in the early mornings and the weekends and the evenings. Um, It was a long period of a lot of redrafting. But in terms of how I managed the research, um, I would kind of move between doing some writing to kind of initiate the narrative through lines of the chapter, and then I'd leave gaps where I needed to backfill research. Um, and then I'd go off and I'd read scientific papers or I'd read, you know, other, you know, archival information or interview somebody and come back. However, there's always the risk then that you cherry pick your information to satisfy the narrative arc that you wish to cultivate in the manuscript. Um, so there's also a process where you take a period of time and adopt a high altitude perspective on the research um, and go back to your sources to sort of double check that you're getting a kind of overview of the field, that you're not sort of selectively representing um, the information. Um, So there were a couple of those sort of global moments in the research process. In a more like practical sense, The way that I organise my research is through a couple of tried and tested um, techniques that that work for me. I don't know whether they work for other people, but I do a reporting memo that sits on the top of each chapter that's a living document um, that really is broken down into two sections. Uh, One of them is, what do I need to know to adequately tell the story, Um, which is often much more wide and deep than the content that's actually in the final work. Um, So for example, if I want to know about, if I want to speak about the ways in which whale blubber contains heavy metal toxins from agriculture, runoff agriculture, um, then I'm going to need to understand biomagnification. I'm going to need to understand lipophilic poisons, like a whole range of much more specific knowledge. And then the other section of the memo is what does the reader need to know? And on a much more simple level, like, you know, a reader may know what blubber is. They might have heard of the word blubber in biology class in high school, but they maybe need a line or two that prompts them to remember that it's this fatty kind of envelope that, you know, allows the body, the whale to maintain a constant inner temperature. So I have that memo and that kind of works for me as a, um, you know, kind of, living document of what are the research tasks I need to do to fulfill, you know, the expectations of the narrative in the chapter. And then I also, um, I also have a separate email address for any long project. Uh, You know, I've got so many Gmail addresses now. Um, And I email myself um, just on the topic of the project. Um, So sometimes they're in the form of letters. Sometimes they're in the form of just like stray thoughts or dot points or, but there's something about sort of skimming off those um, new surface thoughts and um, 
you know, the slightly more outlandish ideas or the, the throwaway, like, oh, I must remember to include X on subject Y and just pushing them into this, this other email um, that clears the space for, um, um, yeah, and, and keeps, keeps a record of the research as well. I wanted to ask some more about your kind of structure and reporting, but I, I do indeed have another factoid question, if that's okay. Could you, could, could you, could you tell us about the mob in Argentina petting a baby dolphin to death? Mm. Yeah, so that was a news story that was really got an incendiary treatment in the tabloids. Um, there were a group of tourists on a beach in Santa Teresita in Argentina um, and a small dolphin, a baby dolphin of quite a rare species, Franciscan dolphin, um, had washed up and um, the crowd passed it around to take photos with it. Um, and there are these, you know, you, you're, they're ghastly, these photos of this crowd kind of holding this this dolphin up above their heads and the animal has dehydrated and um, because it wasn't returned to the water and likely it was also very sick, you know, by virtue of it washing up already, it died. Um, so, of course, you know, the, the news media leapt on it as a story of selfie-seeking tourists kill baby dolphin. Um and interestingly, you know, my, my response to that was also a sense of horror. But I wanted to push past that and explore the question of what's gone wrong in our sense of mourning and our sense of grief when it comes to environmental loss, the loss of animals, such that we kind of want to get so close to these creatures, we almost smother them. And there's a feeling like, we, we care so much we can't stand it. It's, it sort of results in this very uneasy love. Um, and for me, it also connected to this feeling, you know, being on the beach in Perth with this, this humpback um, at the outset of the book, this beach humpback that was alive. Um, there was also a huge crowd that was drawn down to see it. And although it was a very tragic event, there was also kind of macabre carnival vibe to that audience. Um, and I think that that feeling of, um, you know, for all the trouble of what's happening in the ocean, everything from the melting ice caps to marine acidification and noise pollution, it can seem very abstract and very bodiless and sort of beyond our sensory apprehension. And then you get something as immense as a whale or as kind of easily personifiable as a dolphin arrive and there's a feeling like um, here is the body I can mourn like here is something that I can attach my grief to and there's a bit of catharsis in that moment um, so in writing about the Argentinian dolphin I, I sort of wanted to explore those ideas of um, you know where, where we struggle to personify our connection to nature and to individualize that connection and what kinds of weird aberrant grief arise in those moments yeah i wanted to ask um with this kind of marshalling of material whether you were using did you use scrivener or did you use any kind of software tools to do that or were you working just with word docs like how did you manage manage these various documents that you were mm, doing not as if i was starting to design a project from the ground up again i would do it i would do it differently um i hadn't written much narrative nonfiction before i began this book. I'd written 
sort of long form critical reviews. So treatments of books or kind of essays that leap from cultural texts. But um, I had not attempted anything on this scale before. And it was, you know, with hindsight, it was an ambitious, an ambitious project for a debut. Um, so I've ended up with a kind of combination of Word documents and then text files where I was kind of throwing in additional information, you know, in, in addition to these kind of memos and the emails. And it's almost like you have this kind of glitter. It's like someone's dropped a glitter splash through my folders. I've got these hundreds and hundreds of text files that all have micro bits of information in them. Um, yeah, I would do it differently. I wasn't using Scrivener, although... Um, yeah, I have used um, the software that they have that's for um, mind mapping. What's that called? Scrabble? No, Scribble. It's associated with Scribner, um, but it's literally just a, a large scale um, whiteboard on your computer um, where you can throw up kind of clusters of ideas. Um, so I will retrieve the name of that program and <laughs> let you know about it. But um, no, I, I, I stick to word processing. Yeah. What you were saying about um, your sort of two documents in terms of what you need to know and what the reader needs to know, I thought was really interesting because clearly your knowledge is very detailed, but, you know, you're explaining to readers even briefly what blubber is. How do you sort of strike that tone and how much attention do you give to sort of making or the scientific, not jargon, but scientific terminology sort of accessible to the average reader? Yeah, that's a real challenge. And it's a challenge along the way of the reporting process and kind of getting the information out of your scientific sources from the outset. Um, and then at the end, when you're kind of returning the text to those sources to make sure that you've done justice to what they've um, uh, articulated to you. Um, you know, I think science reporting is incredibly difficult, um, not just because of the technical expertise that underlies it, but also because in the sciences, by the time you're sort of at the peak of your career, you've really narrowed down a niche field. So you might start in biology, mid-career you're looking at aquatic biology. By the time you're a senior in your career, you, you've focused in on like the blood barrier of the gills of a fish in a lake in a historical period. It becomes like very, very micro. So it's hard to get people who... Um, you know, are at the peak of their game talking about systemic issues, talking about kind of across the field. Um, and I think that's particularly a problem in Australia because unfortunately, um, you know, the Murdoch press has gone to great lengths to misrepresent um, scientists as part of the elite and um, particularly those who have anything to do with climate science have had very negative experiences of engaging with writers. So, um, you know, you'll often interview a scientist and you'll get a statistic like, um, you know, for example, the humpback population off the coast of East Australia, when it was at its smallest after industrial whaling, they'll say to you, well, it was either 250 or the confidence limit of that estimate is 2,500. And they won't want you to, like, pick either side, you know, you have to sort of include... The, the information, like the confidence limited the estimate. Um, so of course that's not gonna fly with a generalist readership. Um, and then you have to, I suppose, take those facts to other scientists and try to gauge what's a, you know, what's a, 
an adequate representation? What's a, what's a number that's not going to offend anybody? Is there a way to articulate this as conditional, like it could have been as low as 250? Um, yeah. So I tend to, when I'm interviewing scientists, I, I often also try to do paired interviews um, particularly if they've got like a lively postgraduate student who is working with them, somebody who's a bit younger, just getting started. Um, I find that can be a really helpful way to do an interview because um, they are both demonstrating to their student what it's like to engage with the media. And at the same time, um, their student is, I guess, inviting them to speak a little more expansively because they're at their beginning of their career. Um, so paired interviews can be good. And also if you've got researchers who are collaborators or even better, if they're slightly at odds with each other in their research, if they've got slightly differing findings, getting those people in a room together can be really handy. Um, but ultimately in terms of the question of what sort of language do you use to represent science, you have to really think of yourself, I guess, as an avatar for the reader that you're targeting in the book. Um, and your editors are just, you know, that they're really the gauge of when you've <laughs> jumped off the deep end and, and failed to properly kind of explain something and you need to slow down. Um, yeah, so I really credit, you know, the editoring, editing process for a lot of that. Could we talk a bit about the journey of this book, both from your initial Australian publisher to an American one coming in and then working with editors? Like how we um, we had an incredibly geeky conversation in our last episode about edit process, which was quite well received. Um, so I'm, I'm just interested in like what what were you filing initially, like outlines or rough drafts or relatively clean things? And then, you know, yeah, when when it and who were you dealing with? Like, how did your, your kind of bosses vary as this was being pulled together? So I originally signed this book as a short book as part of a series that was being produced by a mid-tier press in Australia. Um, they were doing sort of 30,000 word books um, that were all on environmental themes and that's what the contract was for. So it was um, enough money to pay my rent for about two months. It was a small advance. Um, but befitting the fact that it was supposed to be a very short project. Um, long story short, editors changed. They had some funding that they had to support that short series that fell through. And so I had this contract and I had the project um, and ostensibly I had an editor, but, um, you know, it was uh, not the first person who'd signed the, the project. So I really just took myself off and worked in isolation for a long time. Um, and then I came back to them. And I think this is part of the experience of being a new early career stage writer. You're not quite sure what you can bring to your editor. Like, can you bring outlines? Can you have big sprawling conversations, um, particularly with the with presses that are, um, you know, bring out a lot of books in a hurry? Um, yeah, it's a... I think with hindsight, I should have had a much more um, detailed conversation about that process early on. But at any length, I had peers that I was kind of bouncing work off. I also had a mentor, um, you know, somebody who was in journalism who I talked to a lot about the reporting process um, as well, which was, which was really handy. Um, so with my Australian editors, I really didn't, you know, I came to them when I had 40,000, 50,000 words of the manuscript. 
Um, and by that point, I'd also been passed on to a third editor who was much more invested in the project and was, um, you know, was wonderful and very sort of focused on deadlines and very focused on line edits. Um, so, yeah, we struggled with the structure for quite a long time. But essentially, I'd arrived at a point where I had a book that was 60% done, you know, maybe 70% done. And then I had a, a meeting just serendipitously with another writer from America um, who, you know, at that point I was struggling with the book. I was working full time um, and he really pressed me to, as he put it, professionalize. So you need to get an agent. You need to, you know, be thinking big picture about what comes after this. Um, and he put me in touch with a couple of agents in the States. So um so then I, you know, that the agent that I ended up with, Bonnie Nadell, who's in LA, um, thought that she could sell what I had originally perceived to be a much too Australian book to land with an international audience. And we sold it at that kind of 70% mark um, to Simon & Schuster in the States. And in a way, um, you know, that had, that had a big impact on the manuscript because suddenly I had a second editor who came in with a fresh perspective, um, who was very hands-on um, from the States. And um, yeah, I was responding to another set of notes um, and we did, a, we did another restructure. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and then the sort of, a few things changed across the course of that process. Um, some of it having to do with the market as well. In Australia, literary, narrative, nonfiction, all kind of gets lumped together. So whether it's travelogue, memoir, natural history, there's really such a small market for literary nonfiction in Oz that they all belong in the same, you know, pot. They're the same readers. Um, whereas in America, your kind of natural history readership is much more, um, yeah, it's larger. So you can afford to make the book narrower for that reason. That sounds quite difficult. Lots of different editors with presumably different visions for the book. How did you know which notes to take on and which to sort of ignore? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Some of it is, I mean, for my Australian editors, I had a lot more close focused line edit material. Um, yeah, the, the Americans were willing to be much more interventionist and, you know, they. I felt like my Australian editors were using the tiny tools that dentists use on the manuscript and then the Americans came in with, like, the big um, sledgehammers um, and both sets of tools were needed to, to, to bring it to completion um, uh, and realise the vision that I had for it as well. Um, but... Yeah, there was different stages, you know, the, the, they were never simultaneous. So the Australians got it up to a point and then the Americans took it over for the last year or so. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. I, I published um, an excerpt from the book quite early on in Granta um, in the UK. And uh, in this scene, you know, you've got the beached whale. And at a certain point in the, the story, I talk about overnight some sharks had maybe come up and and they may have savaged the whale or they may not have it's, it's sort of vague and I remember the Brits being like 
So tell us more about the sharks. What happened with the sharks? How close were you to the sharks? Were there many sharks? How? <laughs> and I just realized that there are, of course, different natural, national histories and attachments to different species. And, um, you know, going through these different editorial processes highlighted to me. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's a kind of global book in the end because it does talk about Europe, does talk about America. Um, yeah, it's a, I, my, my hope is that it, it kind of reaches a global audience. So it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with someone's writing life. So, so as much or as little as you're, as you're comfortable with. But during the, the journey of this book and your, and your literary career um, more generally, how have, you, how have you kind of made it work? You said you had a, a full-time job for a period. Like, I'm with your journalism. Just, just, you know, as much as you're comfortable saying, but how have you, how have you kind of built your, your writing life financially? So I worked at a university teaching um, creative writing for four years, um, and that was my full-time salary. Um, that was a lot of teaching. That was, you know, six courses in a semester. So there really wasn't a lot of time separate from the teaching to do, to do other kinds of tasks. Um, but I got a six-month fellowship with a salary attached in Germany in 2018, and that really was my bridge out of academia. Um, and so I had this period of time where I was just doing writing. I was just researching. Um, this was with the Rachel Carson Institute in Munich. So it's mostly historians and anthropologists. And I think I was the only writer there at that period. Although there are a few documentarians as well, filmmakers. Um, and so, you know, and then, then I had the book advance, which of course, you know, probably worked out to be about a year's salary, but it was, they're broken up into four installments. You get a payment on the contract, a payment on the manuscript, a payment on the paperback and a payment on, sorry, hardback, then paperback. So it's not quite livable, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I've had a few small grants and then there's other bits of writing that I've done, um, I've written for The Atlantic over 2019 and 2020, um, and their print rate is really good. Um, so that helps. But also, I, I live pretty light, you know. I, I don't have dependents. I don't have a mortgage. I don't um, – I live – out of a suitcase a lot of the year. Um, so I, I'm where other writers, I think, have had to take on workloads that, um, you know, really push the borders of the possible. Um, I've, I've simply toggled down the expenses related to my living. Um, yeah, how sustainable or not, I don't know for the next five years or beyond, but um, so far, it's it's kind of working. And we do, so I'm in the UK because my partner, who's a playwright, has an associate artist position with a theatre here. And maybe we do this for four years, uh, sorry, four months of the year. But then we also spend some time in Australia. We do some work in Asia where it's very cheap to live. Um, yeah, we move around a lot for that reason because rent is really high here. <laughs> In terms of making connections with editors at The Atlantic um, and, you know, the other publications you write for, how did you go about doing that? The initial interest from The Atlantic came on the back of the Granter publication. So um, 
that that sort of had a little viral moment um and that led to some interest from editors um in one case a writer for the new york times magazine wrote to me and said how much he'd appreciated the piece and i used that as an opportunity to say thank you and also who is your editor you know how do you go pitching to magazine um i haven't done much for them but i've done two letters of rag letters of recommendation which is a department they have in the magazine and then I was approached by the Atlantic to write for the culture pages, the book reviews. Um, and that is a very sort of editor-led um, process. So I, you know, when they've got a book that fits with my particular set of interests and skills, they'll approach me and say, you know, maybe we have two or three books that are in this sort of science space Um and then I read them and I pitch, having read them, three or four pitches for an angle on that story. But it's not the case that I take the book to the editor. The book comes from the editor the other way around. And then because of the culture pages, I also ended up writing for Animal Kingdom, which is a very short section they have in the front of the magazine, um, uh, or used to, um, specifically about animal cognition. Um, and they, although they're only 800 word pieces, um, in some cases I would pitch sort of three um, ideas and sometimes the pitches were nearly 800 words long themselves. Um, so um, it was quite a detailed pitching process. Um, yeah, but I mean, such wonderful editors at The Atlantic. They're really um, second to none. I've had such a good experience there. I really enjoyed those those Atlantic pieces. And I was wondering, this is a bit of another factoid, but could you tell us about the friendship between cows? I found this story fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that was a lovely piece to research. So um, that was actually the last the last uh, column that I wrote for this, this section of the magazine, which has um, subsequently been discontinued. But um, it was looking at the question of bovine friendship. So how do we know if cows have friends? Um, and as it turns out, you know, there, there are um, things like the way they lick each other <laughs> and how they stand with each other and whether they remember one another, if they're shown photographs of each other. Scientists actually study these sort of bonds. And unfortunately, a lot of that study is done by industrial agriculture for the purposes of decreasing mental stress. Um, so, you know, when there's these huge feedlots filled, filled with thousand head herds, you want to try to preserve social connections within those herds um, so that those animals stay as, you know, as least distressed as they possibly can. Um, so while, while cows do have friends, um, they, they also forget their friends very quickly. They forget them within a fortnight if they don't see them. Um, and, and, also, and also the, the licking is non-hierarchical, right? Yes. Uh, that was the bit that I found... <laughs> yes, it's not always the sort of like, yeah, the social structure of the herd is not determined by who licks who. Um, but this is also the case with wild cattle as well. You know, they've observed these patterns with, um, you know, herds on the Serengeti and uh, buffalo and, yeah. This is going to be um, of great interest to my parents whose dog has struck up a friendship with the cows at the bottom of their garden. <laughs> 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 and we made fun of them for suggesting that 
Wilf, my parents' dog, was friends with these cows. So they're going to... This is the fuel to their argument. Cross species. <laughs> well, apparently, you know, cows that have names, so cows that are, um, you know, have been individuated by the, the farmers that own them don't just have numbers but have names, are better at producing milk. So maybe this is like cross-species friendship is good for good for all. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I also was haunted by the detail in your piece about bats. Well, about sort of fear of animals, and you talked about your sort of fear of bats. Um, of the ones that eat parakeets, mm. <laughs> um, that's that stuck with me. I suggest uh, viewers, uh, viewers, listeners, check that one out. Um, in terms of how much time you'd spend on a piece for um, the Atlantic, be it a book review or, or something else, how much time would you devote to to one of those? So those book reviews, you know, come in at about 2,500 words. Um, There's the process of reading the book, the process of pitching, which usually includes a sort of summary of interesting content that I've taken from the book, but then three different angles that we could possibly come at it in one of those essays. And then there's the writing, any kind of editorial changes, and the fact-checking. The writing would take me about two and a half weeks, maybe. Um, the fact checking is incredibly laborious at, at the Atlantic, and I, th- I just, you know, they're second to none. They're fact checkers. Um, so there's one piece I wrote for them right at the very beginning about um, a kind of jellyfish that lives off the coast of northern Western Australia. Anyhow, I described this uh, jellyfish sting as being very, um, not, not very painful, almost akin to if you're walking across a woolly carpet and then you touch a metal doorknob, the zap you get off that. And the Atlantic fact checkers went to the trouble of finding someone who had been stung by that particular jellyfish, who then came back and said, actually, it's more painful than that. It's a bit like a hair being pulled from your arm. And so we were at this point where I was saying to them, is there really that much light and grey between, you know, between a hair being pulled from the arm and the zap of a, a doorknob? Um, but these are some of the sort of idiosyncratic debates that you get into in the tail end of the project. And I would say the fact-checking is a kind of four-day a four-day process um, because you're kind of providing a lot of information, answering a lot of queries, um, and particularly because my style is quite... Um, you know, I, I use a lot of colour um, and, you know, you've got to justify all of the metaphorical language you want to use as well. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, call it call it a month's work once you add in reading the book and pitching. I'd be interested, do you see yourself as an Australian writer or a writer from Australia? I suppose, you know, to, to elaborate that a bit, you know, your your book moved from an Australian book to one with international presence and publication. You're writing for these these American um, publications. I mean, in Britain, you have this quite nomadic lifestyle yourself. Do you, and maybe as an extension of that, tell you know, a bit about the Australian literary scene. Do you feel that you want to kind of stay in that or do you want to, to move beyond to a wider world? How do you... Both, both to straight, you know, living there and and where the environment your work is operating in. Yeah, well, I, I feel a strong sense of obligation to bring the skills that I develop back to Southern Hemisphere stories and stories of Australian nature, particularly. Um, and that works two ways. To the extent that um, I do feel like um, Australia will always be, you know, my heartland and my. Um, I, there are certain kinds of responsibilities that spring up, you know, in terms of 
the bushfire season, for example, 2019-2020, I was here and that was terrible because I really needed to be back. You know, I really needed to be kind of not not right at the front of the, of the news team or um but but to go along behind and kind of pick up those longer tale stories um that's really my remit um because i'm interested in the intersection between you know human culture and particularly animal life um and that was such a story about the loss of animal life in in that moment um so i really at that point i was asking myself those questions like am I where, where do I belong and what 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 are my responsibilities um unfortunately it's very hard to make a living as a writer in Australia um there are just not the kind of news magazines that um would pay you a decent enough word rate to justify you know a deep dive into of long-form reportage um there are fantastic literary journals that are very old but they're so underfunded that really they've become places to um, support a lot of amazing emerging writers and emeritus writers who are you know have earned enough to be able to do the encore section of their career and um and publish in those journals as well um but yeah i mean when I talk to people overseas, of course, the first thing they want to talk about is Australian wildlife. Everyone has an interest in the kangaroos, the wombats, the platypus. Um, uh, and I think that um, that also serves me well in the sense that that's where I skilled up. And I, I have as many factoids about the platypus as I have <laughs> about the whale, if you're interested, Simon. Um, Definitely. But yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm still kind of figuring through those things and thinking about what creative communities I belong to. Um, it's been a strange year because we were supposed to be back in Australia in the middle of the year and um, the international travel caps have prevented me from returning. So, um, yeah. Well, we've reached the end of our time, but I wondered if we could end on a factoid of your choice. <laughs> well, they've just discovered that platypus is bioluminescent. Um, oh, excellent. It is a platypus factoid. I was it is. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> so the platypus is not only venomous and it has a kind of electrical sense, like an electric eel that it can use to send out to stun prey. Um, it has, um, you know, <laughs> it has a little venomous prong on the back of its um, its leg that it uses to, to um, stab things with that might try to kill it. Um, its babies are called puggles, which is very sweet. Um, and they've just discovered that it glows bright blue when you put it under a certain kind of UV light. So it's bioluminescent. Well, Rebecca, that's a fantastic place to, uh, to draw this to a to conclusion. Thank you for being um, a great guest um, with an inexhaustible supply of factoids, but also speaking very, very candidly about uh, your, your writing process. And we wish you all the best, both with this book and with everything going forward. Thank you so much, guys. I'm grateful for your time. Hello, it's us again. Now, before we get into the weeds of the postmortem, we have to address some some feedback that we've received this week that suggested that our um, our outro had become cringy um, and also possibly redundant. Right? Is that right, Rachel? It is. I mean, if it's based on the last episode where we 
gabbed on for 10 minutes about ourselves maybe maybe he has a point but there was also lots of nice things about the show so um yes we'll try and keep it keep it uh not too long but with enough personality so it doesn't uh <laughs> seem robotic we're going to try and uh, yeah try and walk the middle ground here but we do we do cherish feedback and it was uh it was great to have um rachel what did you think of the rebecca interview i uh, loved chatting to rebecca um I've enjoyed a number of her pieces. I mentioned the snails one, so um, that particularly was funny. Uh, as a child, I had giant snails. Really? Which is bizarre. We had all sorts of weird pets. Um, so, <laughs> yes, I would particularly advise listeners to check that one out. Um, but yeah, I really liked the way Rebecca writes, and I thought she was very open about her process and about the difficulties of making it work and, and everything else. Um, and it was interesting to get an Australian perspective on, on a writing career. Um, how about you? Yeah, exactly. I I felt fascinated with that, and that clearly she's you know very rooted in Australia, both as a person, but also with her writing. But is is spreading her wings more widely, and um, and yeah, really interesting to hear hear how that how that works out. And whales, just you know, fascinating creatures. Um, I might have a whale cure if it were available. I don't know. Would you? What? Okay. Which part of the putrid smell and the heat appealed to you? <laughs> Well, I just, you know, I think it is your point that if you've, once you've been inside the blubber of the whale, nothing, nothing could really phase you. Anyway. Would you say you're a hypochondriac, Simon? I mean, yeah, well, possibly, yes. Are you just willing to try it? Do you, do you like sort of alternative medicine? No, but, you know, I just okay. think. <laughs> yeah, I had just trying, I had, just trying I had, to understand why you would consider the, do pu- that. the putrefaction piece. I agree that is, that is a factor. Anyway, what have you, um, what have you been up to, Rachel, this week? Um, basically getting ready for Christmas. So, uh, editing lots of pieces, roundups of the year, um, sort of big essay-ish end of year stuff for people to enjoy on their holidays. Um, and the usual same old course stuff. How about you? Um, I have been, well, I closed one piece. So my big 1843 story ran, uh, last week, which was good. and got some very nice feedback. And I'm finally trying to wrap up this, this big runner's world assignment. Well, um, in parallel juggle, juggle a few other things. So it was meant to be sort of done today, uh, but it's not, uh, kind of inevitably. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm, it's good. I've more or less cleared my deck and I think I can, I think I can have the weekend off, which hasn't, hasn't happened for, for a while. Um, so yeah, just, just kind of looking, looking forward to Christmas really. Um, yeah, that's, that's been, been us. Uh, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvine. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us about what you enjoy or do not enjoy about the show, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.